Who fell this morning other than me? <laughs> okay, I'm the only one. All right, I feel old. That's why one guy confessed over here. All right, nobody crashed, I hope, getting here. The second service, the, streets, the sun came out, the streets were clear. Uh, Christmas of 2017 is behind us, and tomorrow morning with the breaking of the dawn, it'll be New Year of Life. And that's the time of year it's that most people at least do a little bit of reflecting on where they've come from, where they're going in the new year and New Year's resolutions are made and there's New Year's planning. At least most of us, and, and I do, I spend a lot of time in December and January, it's become a life habit of mine, just pausing and reflecting about life and doing a little introspection and thinking about uh, what life's been like, my past failures, my successes, and asking my God and asking myself what changes need to be made in 2018 and maybe you're saying to yourself, what can I do better to become more Christ-like or more the person I really want to be? And I would encourage you, if you're not in that habit, to do it. Uh, to take some time to reflect and ask yourself and ask God some meaningful questions about things that really matter. And I strongly suggest that you factor God into the equation, that you incorporate the great truths of this book that I'm preaching from this morning, His Word, which is readily available to all of us, and the power of his Holy Spirit into your time of reflection, planning, and goal setting. Uh, I'm sure that God has some suggestions for you. For the past several weeks, we've been looking at some specific suggestions that he made to some first century Jews on a hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee. Those of you that have been coming through the past few weeks are familiar with that scene. Uh, in his most famous sermon, so he intends for you and me as 21st century Christ followers to heed those suggestions as well. Even if we have to make some maybe, so I would call them cultural adjustments to incorporate the greater truths behind his teaching. So we're going to join him again on that Judean hillside as he transitions from talking specifically about moral issues. That's what he's been talking about, like, anger and lust and divorce and swearing and revenge. And, and now he's going to talk about three specific first century Jewish religious practices. The first one is called almsgiving or giving to the needy. We'll talk more about that this morning. That's really what the sermon's about. The second one he'll talk about prayer and about fasting is the third topic. The other two will be covered in the weeks to come. This morning we're going to talk about almsgiving. So turn with me now. Let's dive back to the first century hillside to the book of Matthew, verses six, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And if you have a Bible or a Bible app, use them. If not, you can look on the screen. Be careful, Jesus says. And let me start by saying what he's saying here is check your motives. You're going to see that's what he means. Check your motives. Be careful. Not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. Now, acts of righteousness to us could mean a number of things to you. But to the Jews, they knew exactly what he's saying. In fact, the same word acts of, that's interpreted acts of righteousness is also interpreted almsgiving or giving to the needy down in verse 2. And, and what they equated practical righteousness with in Jesus' day and time among the Jews was literally giving to the poor in a very specific way. 
And, and it's not completely clear. I read about 12 commentaries exactly how they did this. There's a lot of thoughts and ideas. And a Bible scholar actually came up between the two services and gave me some notes. I didn't have time to read them, but he explained it to me that one of the things we know they did is there were these horns inside the temple at a certain place where they would throw coins in. Remember the story of Jesus seeing the poor widow throwing in two coins as opposed to, to someone who was wealthy throwing in, a Pharisee throwing in some coins. And, and he made comments about her giving as opposed to his giving. Well, apparently some of those horns, like five or six of them, the money would literally flow into boxes for the needy. And, and that wasn't required giving. And uh, but the giving that was required was to these other types of things, like to support the uh, maybe the people that took care of the temple or things like that. And then the Pharisees and the Sadducees, sometimes when they would go over to give into the other horns and make a big show of it. And that's probably what Jesus is talking about here, maybe. But let's keep going on with this because the cultural anomaly we've got to overcome to make application. Uh, Acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, if you do what? Is he saying if you do your acts of righteousness before men? I don't think that's what he's saying. I think that last little phrase is what we need to look at carefully. I'll tell you why in just a minute. To be seen by men. He's saying, Jim, if your motive, even in the 21st century, when you do some act of righteousness, some good deed, particularly give to the poor, give to the needy, or give to a legitimate cause to help other people, if the motivation is to be seen by men, to make people kind of worship you, to make think really, really well of you, then you've gotten your reward. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. Verse 2. So, when you give to the needy, same Greek word as acts of righteousness, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues. He may have been talking about the trumpet that the, the kind of the shofar's mouth that received the money. He could be talking literally about them going down the streets making noise when they were about to do some gift. There was also a thought that uh, there was a trumpet call when a specific offering was taking up and people were to come. But it may be a metaphor. We don't know for sure, but the point is clear. Don't make a big deal out of your giving so that other people will see you and say, wow, isn't Jim cool, isn't he spiritual, isn't he religious, isn't he a wonderful person because of what he's doing right now, that's what he's really getting at here, so when you give to the needy don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets again, the tag phrase at the end is the most important to be honored by men, I tell you the truth they have received their reward in full More on that in just a minute, but it means exactly what it says. He's saying, you ain't getting no more credit or reward from me. That's the Southern Hick version of that, okay? You've gotten your full payment for what you did, your act, being honored by men. But when you give to the needy, now he is going to use a figure of speech. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Well, you're always going to know what your hands are doing. What he's saying is, do these things as habits of righteousness. It's part of your second nature. Learn to 
be sacrificial and generous as you go through life so that you're not constantly thinking about, I'm doing something right now that uh, people ought to give me credit for and God ought to give me credit for. He said, just do it in the normal everyday flow of life. He's using a figure of speech. Oh, by the way, some of you are old enough to know what this means. Did you know where we get the phrase, don't toot your own horn from? It's from this passage of Scripture. Uh, that's what it means to toot your own horn, to try to draw attention to yourself. Some of you are going, what in the world are you talking about? But it's a phrase that's often been used when people try to draw attention to their own good deeds. Don't toot your own horn, it said. So that your giving may be in secret, then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And In some translations it says he'll reward you openly. Okay, more on the passage now. Jesus is giving these first century Jews some practical advice on how to practice their faith in the first century. Again, there were three activities that were at the core of their day-to-day religious practices. This is kind of separate and apart from them going to the temple on the Sabbath or the synagogue if they didn't live in Jerusalem. It's separate and apart from them keeping, I'm getting a feedback. Can I put this thing down? There's my, is my other mic? Still not working, okay. Uh, if, if, if you were a good Jew, you kept all the religious festivals, you, you did all the sacrifices and all these other things, but there were three other things you did when you weren't in some kind of sacred assembly or going to the temple or going to the synagogues, and these were done on a regular basis. And one of them was this idea of giving to the poor or almsgiving. The other two were praying and fasting. Now, note something. Jesus is taking for granted that they and we will practice the spiritual disciplines of giving, praying, and fasting. That's why he says in verse 1, when you give. In other words, when you give to the poor, when you give to the needy. He doesn't say if you give to the poor or if you give to the needy. In verse 5, later you'll see next week, he's going to say when you pray, Jim, not if you pray. And strangely enough, when you fast, not if you fast. He's saying, don't be showy or pretentious with your giving, your praying, and your fasting. Some of you that are really astute may be remembering something that Jesus said earlier in his sermon that seems to contradict this passage of Scripture. And and we need to take Scripture as a whole. So let's go back and review it and be intellectually honest and try to make sense of Jesus' earlier statement. If you'll recall Matthew 5, 16, what Jesus says. Remember, he's talking about the fact that he wants his ethos, his value system to be known to the world. We're supposed to be salt and light in the culture. And so how do you go about life letting people know that giving to the poor is something Jesus did when he was here on earth. He had a money bag. Judas stole from it where they gave money to the poor. And he created food for hungry people. Jesus cared about people in need. He did. And so he wants that ethos to permeate the culture. Well, if you have to do everything in secret, you're bound to be saying, how can we ever do that? Because he said in the same way, let your light, your good deeds, shine before men that they may see these good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. 
the point has to be related to your motive or your attitude. That must be what he's getting at here. And we'll look at a specific example of that now. Let's go to the book of Acts. Let's go to the early church in the first century, the earliest days of the early church. And we're going to look at, in just a minute, a scary passage of Scripture. But first, let's look at one that's not so scary. And, and let me just set the, uh, the tone for you. This is before there's been any persecution of the early Christians. This is the purest, funnest, sweetest days of the movement. Uh, the people that have become Christ followers are enjoying great favor with the Jewish culture of Jerusalem. The apostles are performing many miracles. And, and the movement is growing like wildfire. The Lord is just adding to their number daily, it says, those who are being, quote, saved. And, and people are making sacrificial gifts. They're selling lands and houses and bringing money to the apostles to distribute it. And so... Dr. Luke notes this about the early movement in verse 34. He says, There were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the, from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Apparently, that was not done in secret. Because the writer notes, Luke notes, and apparently the people knew it, it was well known, that one example of that was a guy by the name of Joseph who's not blamed or judged because he did it publicly, but he did it for the right motive. Apparently, that's the distinction. He was a Levite from Cyprus, and uh, he brought, oh, oh, by the way, his name was Barnabas, really. They changed, I don't know what, why Job has been not Barnabas, but it's Barnabas. Barnabas is well-known throughout the New Testament. He's the guy that went with Paul on his missionary journeys. And his name literally means son of encouragement. So Barnabas was famous for giving sacrificially. He sold a field he owned, brought the money, and put it at the apostles' feet. That's an example of someone giving a gift for the poor, doing it in a public kind of way with the right motive, and being noted and commended for it, and not being judged for it. Next case in point that gets a little scarier. Ananias and Sapphira, chapter 5 verses 1 through 11, the very next verses in the story of the early church. They sold some land, and they brought the money and laid it at the feet of, the, uh, of Peter. And apparently they had seen the recognition that Barnabas and maybe others had gotten from the giving of the gift, and they were giving with the motive of getting recognition. And to accent it, they lied about the purchase price that they sold the land for. They wanted people to think that they were giving all the money they'd gotten from the land when, in fact, they were only giving part of it. And so they were lying. And they were lying and they were doing it for the purpose of self-worship or getting other people to say, wow, aren't Ananias and Sapphira wonderful people, religious people, good Christian Jews, aren't they godly people? And they were doing it for a claim. And something bad happens to them. God strikes them both dead. If that were happening a lot today, there would probably be less sin. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. It'd make me stop and think because you know what? I bet most of us have done worse things than that. I have at some point in my life. Thank you, Jesus. You hadn't struck me dead. 
Thank you, Jesus, for your grace and mercy. But in this case, God wanted to make a point in the early days, in the pure time, in the movement of the church. And why am I telling you this story? To scare you? No. To juxtapose bad motive giving that's public and good motive giving that's public. Notice what Peter says. He says, didn't the money belong to you, the land before it was sold? After it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? In other words, you could have just said, hey, we're giving half of it. It wouldn't have been any big deal. What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men. That's who they were really seeking the claim from, but to God. That goes back to the fact that all sin is at its heart directed against God. It's a rebellion against God. All right, let's keep moving with the story. I wanted to illustrate the fact that it's not all about public giving. It's about motive. The word hypocrite. In Greek, it literally means an actor of that day. It's what it meant in that day and time, who wore a mask, pretending to be something that he or she was not. In this case, it would be pretending to be someone who really cared about the poor and who had gratitude for God. Jesus is referring, when he uses the word hypocrite, primarily to the Jewish religious leaders of his day. Let's read John 12, 43, and let you think I'm not telling you the truth. There were a group of Jewish religious leaders, it says in the verses before this, that were coming to Christ. They were kind of secret Christ followers. But they didn't want to come out and announce they were really Christ followers. They believed Jesus was the Messiah, that he'd been resurrected from the dead. And it says the reason they didn't want it because they knew they might get put out of the synagogue and lose their title. And it says this, For they love the praise from men, the worship of themselves, more than the praise from God. So that's who Jesus was talking to primarily when he was talking about hypocrites in that day and time. But still, it's transferable. We all ought to be checking our motives. Again, in review, to the Jews, almsgiving was a formal religious activity. It's a cultural anomaly in ways to us, difficult to compare it to any kind of religious practice. But what Jesus is addressing is showing us or seeking esteem from other people Coupled with, and this is subtle, it's not stated exactly, although it's stated in other places in the Old and New Testament, and we're going to go there in just a few minutes. Coupled with a lack of concern for the poor and a lack of gratitude toward God. The issue is are we, are you, am I, acting, posing, are seeking attention when we give to a needy person or a worthy cause, or is our motivation primarily to help people in need and to please God? Again, the primary issue is not really whether anyone sees you. Jesus is asking Jim, and he's asking you, to examine our motives. Examine our motives. Superficial behavior is often contrasted to personal righteousness in Scripture. Let me say that again. 
Superficial behavior is often contrasted to what's called personal righteousness in Scripture. And I don't mean by personal righteousness, I'm not talking about the righteousness that we obtain by faith in Jesus that brings to us salvation. I'm not talking about what's called an imputed righteousness. I'm talking about what's referred to as practical righteousness. You see, it goes like this. If I claim to be a Christ follower, granted I have a sin nature and you do too, but I've been given now the nature of Christ in me, the DNA of God. I've been given the Holy Spirit. What flows out of me, at least most of the time, ought to be the ethos of heaven, not my sin nature. And that those good deeds, those that, and righteousness is a two-edged sword. We'll look more at this in just a few minutes. In one sense, righteousness means, when we're talking about practical righteousness or personal righteousness or personal holiness, it means this. There's some to-don'ts in personal righteousness, but that's not what we're talking about this morning primarily. What are some of those to-don'ts? Well, he's talked about them already in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't lie. Don't be an adulterer. Don't steal. Don't look, let's put it in 21st century terms, don't look at porn. Don't do lots of different things. Don't be addicted to alcohol or drugs. Don't be a mean person. But then there's to-dos associated with righteousness on the other side. And he's talking about proactive righteousness. And proactive righteousness manifests itself in a lot of ways. But God is concerned with justice. And he's concerned with mercy and he's concerned with his ethos being known. And so we ought to be affirmative in our righteousness and doing good deeds constantly. That's the whole salt and light piece. We ought to be permeating our culture with good deeds, and that's the proactive side of righteousness. All right, Old Testament passage, then New Testament passage. We're going to take some, a journey this morning through Scripture. Turn with me, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, to Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, the first chapter, Isaiah is a long book, and in the book of Isaiah, this prophet writing about seven centuries before Jesus comes to earth is going to indict the people of Israel and Judah, and he's going to indict them for specific things. He's going to indict them for, for some of the to-don'ts that they've not been doing, or they have been doing. They are materialistic, they're immoral sexually, they're prideful, and they're arrogant, but he's going to also indict them for some things that they should have been doing proactively that they're not doing. And so in the first chapter of Isaiah, he's dealing with some of those proactive things, and he does it in a strange kind of way. God's speaking 700 years or so before Jesus comes to earth, about 2,700 years ago to the children of Israel. He says this, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, God says. I've got more than enough burnt offerings, rams, fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. They're bound to be saying, wait a minute, God. You told us to do all this stuff. Yeah, he did. And he goes on to say, he's being very facetious is the tone here. When you, when you come to appear before me, who asks of you this trampling of my courts? Let me put it in terms of, they were going to church on, some of you can relate to this, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. God said, you don't have to show up to church that much. He's not saying don't do that, but he's going to get to the point here in a minute. Again, he's juxtaposing superficial 
righteousness, superficial religious activity, as opposed to personal holiness or personal righteousness. It's what he's saying. Stop bringing these meaningless offerings. Even your incense is detestable to me. New moon, Sabbath, convocations, all those that are prescribed in the law, by the way. I can't bear your evil assemblies anymore. In other words, I'm sick of your church meetings. I'm tired of coming and showing up. Your new moon festivals, your appointed feasts, my soul hates them. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread your hands out in prayer, well, you commanded us to pray, God. I'll hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer him many prayers, you told us to pray a whole bunch. I'm not going to listen. Your hands are full of blood. Whoa. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. It sounds like he's going to go on to terror, idol worship or something. Listen to what he says. Here's the indictment in the first chapter of Isaiah. Stop doing wrong and learn to do right. Seek justice. Justice in the Old Testament meant fairness. Don't make decisions based on race or on social position or on economic status. That's primarily what he's talking about. You don't believe me? I'll give you a little more in just a few minutes. Instead, start making decisions based on on fairness and equity, on my value system, not the way you're doing. Seek justice. And what does justice look like? Encourage the oppressed, the people that are beaten down by the system or by the culture or by other people. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Start helping the needy among you, he says. And then... Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. And though your sins, what sins? The sins of not helping those in need around you. Though your sins are scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Though they're like crimson, they'll be like wool. Next passage of scripture we'll look at in just a few minutes. Well, let's hold on that. Let me, let me talk a little bit more about the Matthew passage, then we'll get to some more Old Testament passages in just a few minutes. The Greek word for full payment is a commercial term. It's a deco. It literally means like you take a bill of sale and stamp it, boom, paid in full. So what God says, when you do things to be seen by men, I stamp, boom, paid in full on that. I I don't have to worry about rewarding you for that ever. I don't know what rewards look like. God says I'm not going to honor it. In regards to rewards, he's saying this. There is no reward from God for those who seek rewards from men. Let me say that again. There is no reward from God for good deeds for those who seek rewards from men. It's not clear whether he means rewards in this life or in the one to come or in both, but the Bible promises rewards for this type of activity. We'll give you an example in just a few minutes for all the above in many places. Again, almsgiving is just one example of a good deed or a righteous deed. Ephesians 2.10 tells us one of the reasons we were put on this planet, to shine, to shine, to do good deeds. God prepared good deeds for you. He had you in mind doing good deeds before you were created. That's why we were put here, to spread the goodness of God, the fragrance of heaven, the ethos of heaven, if you will, around in the culture. It's one of the reasons we were created.
It's what I've called and what we call practical righteousness again. The focus here, though, is on who's getting the glory, primarily you or God. Jesus is trying to bring me face-to-face in this passage with my own sin nature, my own need, if you will, and your own need, if you will, we think, for others to worship us. If that sounds too strong, let's go back to the wilderness for just a minute. Remember Jesus, 40 days of fasting, and Satan shows up? This concept of self-worship or getting people to worship you and adore you and think you're great, who's the author of that? Well, what was Satan trying to get Jesus to do out there in the wilderness? Bow down and worship him. And so what Jesus is getting at here is that motivation of even doing good in order to get people to worship you. Now there's a subtle difference, and we're going to look at it in just a few minutes, between having a good reputation, which is said to be desirable, by the way, in Proverbs 22.1, and just seeking glory and honor for ourselves. Uh, Old Testament again, Proverbs 19.17. Proverbs 19.17. This is stated dozens of times in the New and in the Old Testament. God promises blessings to generous people who give to people in need. Over and over. I've told you before, I think it's a universal principle. I think it applies to Jews, Muslims, Hindus, agnostics, atheists, Christians. Maybe it doesn't, but it sure appears to be from my own life experience. He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord himself, it says in Scripture. And God will reward him. Same thing Jesus said in Matthew for what he has done. Next passage of scripture, one I've gone to before. One of my favorite books in the Old Testament, most of you know, is the book of Job. So if you want a definition of righteousness, what it means to be righteous and just, I strongly recommend two chapters of the book of Job, two sections of two chapters, Job 29 and Job 31. I'm going to read a few verses from one of those two chapters this morning because this concept of practical righteousness is very, very, very important to us to get. And, and what's happening here, if you'll recall, is Job's sitting outside of town on a garbage dump. He's covered in boils and sores. All of his kids are dead. His wife's kicked him out of the house and told him to curse God and die. And his theologian friends have come out to try to find out what his sins are. And he's in a position not of bragging. He's got nothing to brag about. He's lost everything. And he alleges that this is the sovereign hand of God for some unknown reason, and he's right. And God shows up later and says he's right. But his friends are saying, there's got to be something you've done, Job. And Job even says in another place, don't try to make me inherit the sins of my youth. Yeah, I may have been a mess back there way a long time ago, but that's not been the trajectory of my life, and I will not inherit those sins. I can change. You can change. Job says, I have changed. And here's what my life has looked like. And he's defending his integrity. And when he begins his defense of his integrity, he says some things about those to don'ts. And he says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look at a woman lustfully and all that other stuff. But then he gets to the heart of the matter where he spends the most time. And here's what it looked like 2,000 years before the birth of Christ. And here's what it looks like 2,000 years after the birth of Christ to be practically righteous. Verse 11, 
Whoever heard me spoke well of me. Well, why did they speak well of Job? Why would they speak well of him? And those who saw me commended me. Job says, I had a good reputation is all he's saying. I used to. Why? Because I rescued the poor who cried out for help, the fatherless who had none to assist him, and the man who was dying blessed me. And I made the widow's heart to sing. I put on, if you you want a verse for 2018, this is Tim Keller's verse. I recommend it to you. Check out Job 29.14 if you want one for 2018. He said, I put on righteousness as my clothing. It became a second nature for me to do these things, to give to what I saw a need to give if I had means to give. Righteousness became part of my clothing. He said, justice was my robe and my turban. Again, when we talk about justice in the Old Testament, we're not talking about punishing people. We're talking about merciful, justly treating other people with respect and dignity, regardless of their race, regardless of their socioeconomic status, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of anything. It's treating people fairly, not with privilege. That's what he's saying here. Justice was my robe and turban. I was eyes to the blind. I was feet to the lame. In other words, he helped people with disabilities. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. And I'm not trying to make a political statement. It's clear he's talking about aliens living in the land. Does that resonate? He's not saying who should get in or who should get out. He's not concerning himself with politics. But when there are people around me that I can see and meet their need, if they're immigrants, if they're not Jews, if they're not, and, and you know what, Job wasn't even a Jew. He was before the whole Jewish thing. He said, I still was meeting their needs too. Immigrants, needy, disabled, strangers. And he says, I broke the fangs of the wicked. Who's he talking about? He makes it clear later. He's talking about wealthy oppressors. He said, I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims, those in need, from their teeth. He's opposing systemic forms of injustice in his culture. That's what Job's doing. Check it out. More in chapter 31. I won't read the rest of those. So that's a definition of practical righteousness in the Old Testament. It gets scarier in the New Testament. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 25 verses 31 through 46. This is a scary passage of scripture to me. I like passages of scriptures that talk about heaven that go like this. I'm a career criminal hanging on a cross. I've been a career criminal all of my life. I'm even saying to my other crook on the other side of Jesus, I deserve capital punishment. We've been career criminals our whole life. We're getting what we deserve. Jesus, remember me when you come into my kingdom. And Jesus says, today with me in paradise, Jim. I like those kind of stories. These kind of stories bother me. They're the kind of stories where Jesus says things like, okay, someday I'm going to be sitting on a throne. And all the people that have ever lived from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue, and every ethnicity are going to be before me, this sea of people. And I'm going to separate them, sheep on the right, goats on the left. And I'm going to say to the sheep things like, come, and inherit the kingdom 
that was prepared for you before the foundations of the world. And he says in John 14, I've been working on continuously since I left your planet. And he says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. That's why I'm letting you in. That's what he's saying. I was in prison and you came and visited me. I was sick and you ministered to me. I didn't have clothing. You gave me clothes and so on and so forth. I had lots of needs and you met those needs. And they're saying, Lord, not many of us here that were first century Christians. We never saw you on the planet. And he says, yeah, you did. When you did it to the least of these, that's what he calls that group of needy people, I considered you doing it unto me. And then the goats, he's going to say the opposite. And you can read that. He sends them to a place, a way to a place of eternal punishment because they did not meet the needs of people around them. Then he says this in the last verse of this section. The goats will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now, I thought theologically that righteous in the terms of salvation meant those that are justified by faith, and it does. But again, going back to what I said earlier and what the Bible clearly teaches, that righteousness ought to be manifesting itself in a practical form of righteousness that causes me to give to those in need around me, and that ethos ought to be leaking out of me. If it's not, it may not be real. That's what he's saying. This is Jesus. A practical form of righteousness is what he's very, very interested in. Acts 20, 34 and 35. I know what some of you might be thinking right now. Jim, I don't know there really are any poor in America like there were poor in Jesus' day and time. And, and that might be true. might be true. Here's what I would say to you. Again, I'm not making a political statement. You go prepare a budget. I defy you. This afternoon when you get home, you get in a world for a single mom making minimum wage with two kids living in America. You see if you can make it work without significant government assistance and even with significant government assistance. If you want to give to a person in need, you don't have to give to the people that are on the street corners. Some of them may be cons. I'm sure some of them are. You may want to give to them if the Lord prompts you to. That's up to you. But there's lots of people in need around you that are working full-time or that can't work. And I'm not asking you to validate laziness. I'm not. But there are people in need in America, in Fayetteville, Arkansas, that the Holy Spirit is trying to get your attention to meet some of those needs by giving to New Heights Church, which tries to do that, by giving to organizations, or better just giving to people in need around you. So I would strongly recommend and say to you, that's still the ethos of heaven that still ought to be leaking out of all of us that are Christ followers. You figure out who you're going to give to. There's certainly people in other parts of the world that are starving to death that you can give to if you don't want to give to Americans in need, if you think the need's less. But I leave that to you and God and the Holy Spirit. Now, back to this idea of a work ethic, though. I want to comment on it. We're not to validate laziness, and I'm not encouraging that. Here's what Paul said about that. Paul said, here's the reason I worked. And Paul was probably a workaholic. He worked, he says, night and day, his own words. 
so as not to be a burden to the people he was with. He was a tent maker. And here's the greatest evangelist in the world, making tents, moonlighting. And he says why he did it. He said it to the Thessalonians. He said it to the Ephesians here in this passage, Acts 20, 34, and 35. He says, the reason I worked so hard to paraphrase it when I was with you was to meet my needs, not to be a burden to you, to meet the needs of some of my companions who were out doing the work of God, maybe more than I was. And he says, to give to those in need. And then he stops and he pauses. Jesus himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So he's encouraging, working hard to make a living, and he's also encouraging giving away some of that to people who are in need. Practical applications and suggestions. Number one, if you're struggling this morning or this week or this year of life, if you're struggling with attention-seeking, you don't have to tell me or confess it to anybody else. Confess it to God. And, and check yourself. All of us do things, most of us do, with mixed motives. If you're struggling with attention-seeking, the best antidote, number one recommendation, is to spend more time focusing on Jesus and his sacrifice that he made for you. Ask God to develop an attitude of gratitude in you and participate with the Holy Spirit in redirecting your thoughts toward him as you give to anyone in need or any good cause. Matthew 25, that parable of the sheep and goats, clearly teaches us that when we give to the least of these, he considers it giving to himself. Mother Teresa said that she saw in the faces of the poor of Calcutta, Jesus. She saw Jesus in the faces of the poor as she ministered to them. Her motivation for pouring out her life was gratitude. That was her primary motivation. It was what I would call a first commandment, a vertical motivation. She saw herself ministering to Jesus. And you know what? She had biblical support for that position. Closely related to that first suggestion, number two. Develop a habit of daily personal worship. Not just Bible reading, not just prayer, where you're asking. Those are important too. But daily personal worship of God. Learn to tell him you adore him and tell him why you adore him every day of your life, even if it's just for a minute or two. Learning to adore and worship God passionately through song or through words or through reading scripture back to him will cure a lot of your self-consumption. It's helped me with mine. It will help you get over your love affair with yourself as you fall more and more in love with the lover of your soul, Jesus Christ. Third suggestion, an antidote for self-consumed giving is to become an expert in spotting other people's needs. Get the focus off the act of giving, maybe, and start looking at what other people's needs are around you, and then learn to develop joy. It's okay to feel good about doing good. Learn to develop joy in trying to meet other people's needs. It's a godly kind of problem solving that Jesus loves and he will honor in your life. Let me tell you a little story about that from my own life. Uh, we constantly learn things and then we forget them. We relearn things, we forget them. That's why it's important to hear stories, to interact with other Christians, to be motivated by testimonies. And so this is a little testimony that helped me remember some things and relearn some things. Fourteen years ago this month, I went on a go-find-yourself trip 
It was kind of a, a rich man or woman's go find yourself trip, but I got to go because I was the token paid religious professional and somebody paid part of my way. And I did some quid pro quo. I did some writing back then, and I was writing some articles for the state religion paper, and I covered the trip, and that helped pay for it and some other things. And I'd help prototype some of the materials that my friend Mike Thompson was using to do this thing called a radical sabbatical. And there was two guys... Two gals and six guys went on the trip. And we were kind of a varied group. One of them was a young gal that had just graduated from JBU and I guess had some money to spend on the trip. It was kind of an expensive trip. And the other gal was, I think she was, uh, didn't have to pay as much because she was working while she was on the trip. She was a clinical psychologist. And she analyzed all of us and worked with us before we went and then dealt with us, bless her heart, while we were there. And we were supposed to be asking ourselves and God's questions like, what are my passions and life skills and what do you want me to do and what do I feel good doing the rest of my life? It was one of those kinds of things. And it was in a terrible place called Costa Rica in January. And we traveled all over the country, and we started out in the capital city. And a lot of time we spent in the jungle and in the mountains. But this was the first day we were in the capital city of San Jose. And, and, and my friend Mark Greenway, some of you know, was on a trip with me and some other folks that I knew. And, and it was a, an incredible week of my life. And, and let me just say this. Strangely enough, God showed up and did exactly what Mike wanted people to do in my life. And it's the reason I'm standing here today. I asked him two questions, and one of the questions was, should I leave the church I was at on staff, fellowship, and come to New Heights? And he answered in spades, yes, I should. And so I'm standing here today. But first thing he had us do was fast. So we had to fast, and it was, thank Jesus, only 24 hours. And, uh, and we, so we fasted from the night before we left until the night we got down there in San Jose and, and on the plane ride and all this stuff. And, you know, you're kind of hungry. Hey, I'm an American. I'm used to eating. I like to eat. And so I was hungry by that night. And he had us do what he called a hunger hype. And he broke us up in groups of four. I think my group, Patty was in my group. She was the clinical psychologist and, and Mark. And anyway, I don't remember who the fourth person was, but three guys in a gown. And so he turned us loose on the streets of San Jose at night, typical large Central American city, moderately safe, a little dangerous, you know, several million people, uh, kind of like being in New York City or or something like that, and people weren't moving quite as fast as in New York City. But there was a lot of poor people on the streets as there is in a large city. And he gave us four items. He gave us some money, I think less than $25 cash, and then he gave us some shoes, he gave us a coat, and then he gave us some food. And he says, I want the four of you to go out as a team. You have to have 100% agreement before you give anything away and look for needs of people. And see if you can't hit a bullseye with the money. You give it to a person that really needs it and really needs some shoes, really needs a coat, really needs some food. And we had to spend like two to three hours doing this because we had to, we had to first of all communicate in Spanish and then I spoke very good Spanish. And then we had to observe and study people and really get our minds off of ourselves and our little hungry bellies and start looking at other people who had more serious needs and trying to meet those needs. And wow, when we were done, it was incredibly exhilarating, gratifying. And it reminded me that I need to be doing that more every day of my life, looking at other people's needs and not just my own as I go about checking off my to-do list. And it had an impact on me. That's my little story for this morning. Next point. Last one. 
every morning in your time alone with God, I strongly suggest developing a habit of reminding yourself of a great spiritual truth. God sees and hears everything. Everything. Let's go to Psalm 139, Old Testament first. I've been going back and forth. So let's go to Psalm chapter 139, David speaking and writing about a thousand years before Jesus Christ would come to the earth. And he says this, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. I mean, you really, really, really know me. Here's how well you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise. In other words, every time I get out of my chair, put it in 21st century terms, at my desk, you're aware I just stood up. Every time. You know, every time I sit down or I stand up. And you perceive all of my thoughts. You're way up there, and you can read my mind, and you're doing it all the time. Woo. You discern my going out and my lying down. You know when I leave the house to go to work and when I come back and go to bed, he's saying. You're familiar with all of my ways or my habits and my customs, my good habits, my bad habits, my good relationships, my bad relationships. You know all that. And before a word is on my tongue, you know completely what I'm about to say. That really scares me because it says in another place, I'll be held accountable for every idle word spoken. Wow. Wow, is that really true? The writer of Hebrews, going back to the New Testament, puts it this way. He starts out talking about the importance first of the word of God. Then he switches to God himself. Let me read it to you. For the word of God, Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, is living and active. Sharper than a double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, if we'll read it. Joints and marrow, it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Then in verse 13, switching to God himself, nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered, laid naked is the thought, and bare, laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must someday give an account. The fourth suggestion is this. Just say to yourself every day, numerous times throughout the day, beginning in your quiet time, God, I know you're watching. I know you're right there. And before you utter a word, remind yourself, God, (laughs) I know you're here what I'm about to say. That's a scary thought, but it's a fact. We need to be constantly reminding ourselves of that fact. We live, we act, we think, we create, we work, we curse, we speak and interact with other people in the presence, in the intense relational presence of an all-knowing God that knows us intimately. Someone else put it this way, and I love this thought. We need to live and perform for an audience of one. An audience of one. It's okay to look forward to the day. I do, more and more and more. I long for the day that he'll say to me, well done, good and faithful servant, or good job, Jim, come on in. Enter the joy of your master. The supreme matter of life is your relationship with God. It's the first commandment. That's the supreme matter of life. He valued you enough to lay down his life to reconcile you to himself. How much do you value him? 
That's at the heart of all this. Our giving and all of our good deeds, all of our religious practices should reflect first and foremost a concern for our relationship with the lover of our souls. And secondly, and closely related, it should reflect a great value and stain for the people he created and came to die for and reclaim. The second commandment. In the end, nothing else is going to matter but God and people. That's it. That's all that matters. Let me just share the gospel this morning. I felt compelled to do it last night when I was making some additions to the talk. It goes like this. About 2,000 years ago, God came to earth. A Roman historian notes it by the name of Tacitus. A Jewish non-Christian historian named Josephus notes it. Four Christ followers that are historians note it. And we have records of one of them going back to the first century. Scraps or shreds of the book of Mark. They all note it. He was born to a poor teenage virgin by the name of Mary. He grew up in an ordinary blue-collar first-century Jewish home in a backwoods province of the Roman Empire called Palestine. He came to earth according to laws that he'd written before the dawn of time that required the blood of a perfect sacrifice and to appease his own sense of justice, he came to buy you and me back, the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, to reclaim us by paying for us with his own life to satisfy his own sense of justice. At about age 30, we don't know a lot about those first 30 years. At about age 30, he came out, so to speak, as a Jewish rabbi. And for about three years, he walked around those Palestinian hillsides preaching incredible truths, some of which I've shared with you this morning, all of which are available to you if you'll read the book. He performed many miracles. He walked on water. He raised the dead. He healed the sick. He stopped storms. He did other things to validate his deity, his right to rule. And then some jealous religious leaders conspired with the Romans who were the governmental authority of the day to kill him. And they, ra- they nailed him to a real Roman cross and he really died and was placed in his tomb, was there for about three days and rose from the dead. And when he did, he appeared to about 500 people in about a 40-day period of time. And then he ascended to heaven. He sits on the right hand of the Father. And someday he's coming back as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And I don't know how, but he's going to set everything right and straight. But if you want to be with him forever and if you want him now, you've got to admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And you have to embrace him as your personal Messiah and be reconciled to God through him and through his blood. And you acknowledge that publicly by taking on the sign of baptism, which Christians have done for 2,000 years. Being immersed in water is a symbol of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and rising again to new life. So I offer that to you this morning. The Baptists here. We had three baptisms last night. You can go home wet and frozen. If you've never done that, some of you may want to do it again. I've done it more than once. To just identify with him again that you belong to Christ and you're his forever. That's the gospel. 
you have the opportunity to do what Christians have done for 2,000 years, to come and pray with your brothers and sisters about that or anything else this morning. If the prayer team is out there, come on up, start scattering around the room. We have the opportunity to take communion if Christians are commanded to do regularly in remembrance of his sacrificial death. In our case, the grape juice, some churches wine, doesn't matter. As a symbol of his blood spilled for you on a Roman cross about 2,000 years ago. And the wafer or the bread representing his broken body. You can do that around the room this morning as Christians have been doing for 2,000 years. We offer that to you. Go pray for someone if the Holy Spirit's telling you to do or if you've got a word for them. This is a ministry time. You're free to do that here. We're a weird church. We really do those kinds of things. And you have the opportunity to do this. Let's stand and engage him right now. That Jesus in worship.